Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. We have a busy show today. Lots to get to. And I want to get your take, especially if you are a renter or a landlord, because for most people in that position, in the rental position, rent is due tomorrow. Landlords will be collecting the rent. And there are petitions out there. There are posters calling on a rent strike. There is advice being given to some renters saying if you can't pay, don't. Landlords in many cases are worried about what they're going to do. I'm getting email from landlords saying they're concerned because they think in some cases people are trying to take advantage of what's going on. So we're going to try and break it all down. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to check in with the Vancouver Tenants Union. And a bit later on this half hour, we are going to talk to David Hutniak with Landlord BC. Then I'm opening it up to you. Are you a renter concerned about how you are going to pay the rent tomorrow? Or maybe you have enough for tomorrow's rent, but you're worried about the next month. Are you a landlord concerned about not getting the rent payments? Are you concerned about what offers have been given when it comes to government assistance and if they're not being given fast enough to help people for tomorrow's deadline. We're going to talk about that this half hour of the show. A bit later on in the program, we take a look at some other industries that are really feeling the pinch because of the pandemic. Uh, The wine industry in BC, we're going to check in with truckers. They are the ones that are still bringing us those essential items that we are able to still get at grocery stores and other outlets. They're finding issues, trying to find bathrooms open in some scenarios. So we're going to talk about that and much, much more coming up on the program. But first, let's check in with David Hendry. He is a steering member with the Vancouver Tenants Union. He's on the line with us now. David, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Thank you so much. Uh, What is the Tenants Union then advising people or telling renters who are concerned that come tomorrow, they don't have enough to pay the rent? Right. So this was just clarified by the B.C. government uh, yesterday in terms of how they will be handling uh, both eviction notices and uh, unpaid rents. So what uh, I understand is that any eviction notice that is given after March 30th uh, does not have any force. Uh, What will happen, though, is if people uh, have unpaid rents after the emergency period is lifted, that uh, those that will be actionable for eviction notices. So what we're asking people to do is, uh, you know, they can go on our website, bcrentcrisis.ca. Uh, they can get more information. Uh, they can organize in their buildings because we think that renters have a lot more power when they are organized together. Um, there are going to be people who are not able to pay because of the crisis, because of the already chronically low uh, wages and high rents that people have. So we think that people should try to make the best decisions uh, with the most information, and they should, uh, they should safely talk to their neighbours. And we have a, a plan on our website Uh, for how people can do that. Uh, I've seen a lot of posters uh, in Vancouver. Mike Smith talked about posters he saw in Victoria today as well that are calling on a rent strike. Is that something your group is calling for? You know, when we think about ways that we can uh, can win things for tenants and for renters, we want to make sure that uh, that we can win. And we want to make sure that uh, in the end, that we can support them through <clears throat> through whatever comes. And rent strikes have a lot of legal implications, and there's a lot of uh, uh, there there is risk involved as well. So if tenants uh, if tenants organize in their buildings and they decide to take that step, then we will find ways to work with them. But we're not calling for a general rent strike uh, because we we do feel that um, we want people's lives to improve, you know, we we want to make sure that people have all of the information available. Right, because I would think that the common goal here, no matter if you're a renter or a landlord, the common goal is that we get through this pandemic, we get to the other side, people still have their homes, people can then recover from it and get back to some kind of normal life. Right. No, nobody wants to lose their home. Uh, nobody wants to go into debt. And we don't believe that renters uh, should bear the brunt of this crisis. Uh, many landlords, especially corporate landlords, big landlords, are expecting business as usual. Uh, some of them are even looking at ways that they can make additional cash in this crisis. And that, we don't believe, is uh, ethical. 
Um, and so we're going to have to keep a very close eye on what happens when low-income people are going to go into renter's debt. And we're going to keep a close eye on that. We're going to be organizing and we're going to be lobbying government as well. Uh, when you say some are trying to make additional cash, what, do, do you have an example of that? Or what specifically are you talking about? Yeah, so there, there are landlords that we've been in contact with who are uh, expecting late fees to be included. Uh, they're expecting, in some cases, to have interest accumulated. Uh, so these, you know, uh, if if some of these deals are being made with tenants, we ask people to to be cautious about uh, signing any agreement with their with their landlord, um, because some of those things are being included in those deals. Uh, so when we talk about the, this idea then of of getting through this the next few months at least, so what about the the uh, helps that have been put in place by the various governments, whether it's the rent subsidy help uh, by the provincial government, uh, the the fast tracking of EI? Do those measures not help renters at least make ends meet and maybe help them make their rent for the next few months? So it really depends on people's economic circumstances. Uh, if we look at uh, Vancouver as a whole, we know that uh, the average market rent for a one-bedroom apartment is uh, $2,100. Uh, the CMHC average rent is about uh, is close to $1,500 for a one-bedroom apartment. So if we look at the federal income supports, for instance, those are the ones that are going to be ongoing. Uh, that would be uh, at least about 70 or 80 percent of, of people's income or, you know, going towards their rent. So uh, um, and this there's a one thousand um, dollar subsidy that from the provincial government, but that's a one time only uh, payment. So uh, I believe that because of the high rents uh, in this context, people are still going to be struggling. Um, and, you know, there's situations where people have lots of kids or, you know, more kids or they have uh, larger apartments or so it um, we, we don't think it will be enough for everybody. And just one final question, and I know you've put this number in your toolkit. Do you know or have an idea then uh, when we're talking about renters, how many people are able to have savings or have savings that uh, for not just for a pandemic, uh, if they were to lose their job or something was to happen that they lost their income that have enough savings to get through at least a month or a couple of months? Right. So the the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives put out a report uh, just less than a week ago, which they surveyed, I think, 1.3 million uh, renters across Canada. So it wasn't just uh, BC, it was across Canada. But um, basically, they said that half of those people have less than a month's savings, and, uh, and a quarter of that have less than a week's savings. So uh, we really have to understand that this is a that income inequality and and poverty is a systemic problem, and that those are real problems that were here before COVID nineteen. All right, uh, David, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. I'm sure we'll talk to you about this again. But thanks so much for coming on the show today. All right, we were just uh, ta- talking with the Vancouver Tenants Union before the break. Let's bring in David Hutniak, the CEO of Landlord BC. David, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Congratulations on your new show, by the way. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we got some clarification from the BC government on what exactly is happening with the idea of a rent freeze, of an eviction freeze, as we go through and continue dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. As far as you know, so what does that mean for landlords who might now be in situations where their tenants are not paying the rent? Okay, well, the, the eviction freeze does include... Uh, 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 a rent freeze that's tied to the increases only. So it's not a rent freeze, it's a freeze on rent increases. So that means that anyone who had a, a April 1st uh, rent increase communicated that's no longer in effect and that uh, continues, uh, you know, as long as the uh, Emergency Measure uh, Act is in place here. So we don't know the timeline for that. The In the context of the, you know, the broader eviction freeze, I think I think it's really important to understand that uh, 
you know, uh, our sector has, uh, frankly, demonstrated uh, significant sensitivity and compassion to uh, what is happening in this, uh, this crisis. Uh, certainly, our organization has been uh, very active in reaching out to all landlords to ensure that uh, they have information and tools, and that they're, they're working uh, sense- with great sensitivity uh, with their tenants to try and find, uh, uh, you know, accommodations in, in the sense of uh, perhaps rent deferrals, et cetera. So, so, you know, nobody wants to see anybody unhoused, uh, whether or not there's an eviction moratorium or not. There's a health crisis here, and certainly our sector uh, is playing a part, and wants to play a part, and needs to play a part. So, so we totally get that. The, the, the challenge is, and, and you and I have spoken before, you're totally familiar with the fact that our sector is pre- predominantly small mom-and-pop landlords, and uh, these folks are really scared right now. Many of them have real jobs, and they too are either ill or, or you know, unemployed now too, and they've always required that uh, rent check to basically help them keep their housing for their families. And now, you know, we're facing a situation here where uh, come tomorrow, uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty as to whether or not rents are going to be paid, and that's, uh, that's something that, uh, frankly, you know, uh, we need a province to address, and, uh, and and we're hoping that uh, you know the premier, uh, when he speaks tonight, will will really encourage renters to understand that they have a responsibility here. If they can pay their rent, they need to pay their rent. Right, but but even with that, and I'm sure many many people will. Uh, what it says on the government website is that a person cannot be evicted during this state of emergency for unpaid rent. So what does that mean to us? Say a mom and pop landlord who maybe has two, three rentals, and suddenly that money stops coming in? Well, again, the Premier, when they made this announcement, uh, these announcements on the 25th, both himself and uh, Minister Robinson, the housing minister, were, were clear that the, so the uh, moratorium they're putting in place, the, uh, the uh, rent supplement that they're putting in place, uh, do not uh, preclude folks who have the ability to pay rent to pay rent. Okay, there are other supports coming from the federal government. Uh, the, the provincial government has uh, announced programs above and beyond this rent supplement. The bottom line is, and they were very clear, and like I said, I feel they need to be even more clear, that we're all in this together, that the expectation is that renters will pay their rent. Clearly, there are going to be some who are challenged, and, you know, there's going to be, you know, a period of, uh, of adjustment here, uh, which is quite evident. Um, but, again, renters should have been, you know, talking to their landlords in advance of April 1st. Certainly, we were encouraging, and we know this is happening on a broad basis, where landlords were reaching out to the tenants, uh, advising them that, you know, we want to work with you, suggesting solutions. So so that work has been uh Happening, and we provided tools, and we were helping landlords navigate this. So, so it's everyone here has a responsibility, basically, to try and find uh, solutions that are accommodating for everybody, and that includes landlords, and it also includes uh, renters. Are you expecting different a different response from, say, the mom and pop landlords as opposed to the bigger commercial landlords? Well, we hope not. I mean, uh, obviously, they're going to be more challenge, but this is the challenge across the sector. I mean, you know, anybody who's, uh, whether you're big or small, you know, if you, you've made major investments in new purpose-built rental, what have you, you're, you know, these are huge investments and, and uh, they're heavily leveraged and there's huge costs in terms of mortgage costs, operating costs, etc. So uh, this is, this is a, a, a small margin business. It's a long-term investment and it's critical housing that we provide. Now, I appreciate that, you know, there's rarely a whole lot of sensitivity for our sector. But in this time right now, I think there needs to be some sensitivity. And I would say in particular for those small landlords who are disproportionately the the larger cohort of of our sector. They're the ones who provide the majority of rental housing. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we, we kept messaging to these smaller landlords, try and work with your tenants, try and find some solutions. Here's, you know, a repayment uh, uh, option that uh, you can maybe perhaps cons- consider for some deferral. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, particularly with some of what we're hearing, 
you know, on social media for, you know, rent strikes, what have you, uh, you know, we're really concerned. And these small landlords in particular, you know, based on the volume of calls and emails, they are extremely nervous and, and they have a right to be. And, and that's just they, sh- they shouldn't have to be placed in this uh, this uh, situation. All right. We'll have to leave it there. And uh, David, we're hoping for some clarification when the Premier speaks tonight. Hopefully we will get that. Uh, On that note, uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again in the coming days. But thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you very much. Bye-bye. That is David Hutniak, CEO of Landlord BC. When we come back after a break for the news to the bottom of the hour, I'm opening up the phone lines and want to hear from you. Are you a renter? Are you concerned about paying your rent tomorrow? Are you a landlord? Do you have tenants that have already told you they do not have the money and will not be paying the rent tomorrow? We have been talking about industries that are feeling the effects of COVID-19. I think it's safe to say most industries are, and the BC wine industry is one of those. And there are many different parts of that industry that are being impacted because of this, even with some measures being taken as far as offering free shipping and supporting their workers, trying to keep the online sales going. It's still going to be a bit of a struggle. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Miles Proden, CEO of and president of the BC Wine Institute. Miles, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Miles. Thanks so much for yeah. being here. Hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> um, what are the biggest issues you see right now with BC wineries and dealing with this pandemic? Well, it, it, it's access to market. You know, it's as simple as that. Is uh, the wine is still there? I mean, I think the other thing people need to consider is that. Not only is there wine in a bottle uh, sitting at the wineries looking for uh, for a home with uh, some thirsty consumer, but the vines are growing. So uh, it's not as though you can just shut it off and uh, and, and sort of wait this thing out. Um, the grind, the wines are growing, and the the grapes are will be soon coming in, and so it's it's a continual process that just keeps going. So we need to be able to uh, find a home for uh, the wine that's uh, ready to be sold and. And and that's being constrained with the the situation today. Right. And that even seems, though, like that might be the easier part, is if wineries can do online sales and still get the wine delivered. That could we, we could do that given the current climate and with social distancing and all of that. But what happens then with workers and working at the winery and harvesting the next batch? Well, you're you're right. I think you know you you break it down into two different two different aspects. There and they're they're obviously linked, but there's the growing side of it, which is farming, and it's important to realize that every BC wine comes from a farm. It it uh, it, it by its very nature, when we see it's BC VQA, meaning it's 100% BC, means it has to come from uh, come from land. So there's the growing of the grapes and access to uh, to workers. Uh, temporary foreign workers is a huge, uh, huge program for uh, a lot of uh, wine growers here in the province. And so that has just been sorted out to some degree. There's still some bumps and in, in, in like anything else trying to figure out what that, how that's going to work. So there's that aspect of it. And then the next is, is the making of the wine. Uh, that can happen uh, fairly, fairly easily. That will continue to to, to happen with the winemakers and the cellar hands and social distancing and safe practices within the winery. But then there's the retail side of it. And uh, I think people will appreciate that by far the majority of our wineries in BC are small. They're small family owned operations that rely primarily on people visiting the winery to experience and buy the wine. And so if those are shut down, which they are, the tasting rooms where people can come in, taste wine have been uh, have been shut down. So staff that would typically, as we get into the busy summer season, start staffing up for that, that's not having happened. So uh, th- that's directly affecting it. Fortunately, wineries are still able to sell wine from the tasting rooms. Those are still open. So you can, as you say, order and have delivered directly, or you can make arrangements and stop by and pick it up. And uh, uh, people are still encouraged to do that. And as long as that happens, that, that that's going to be good. But there's no make, make no mistake, tourism is critically wounded in this situation and winery visits are going to be down for some time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we've seen in other areas how quickly uh, things that we were told in the past couldn't be done, whether it's renewing auto insurance online, having liquor delivered with takeout meals. It, th- those things have quickly changed given the pandemic, which I think people will agree is good. Does there need to be changes or, or your hope? are your hopes that 
this pandemic might change things as far as interprovincial trade or opening up those lines to get to get more opportunity for BC wineries? Well, I think you, you, you raise a good point. I mean, interprovincial trade has long been an ask of our industry here in British Columbia. And uh, I guess this really drives home the point that have we had that, uh, that other outlet uh, to, to take advantage of when we get one or multiple channels closed here in the province, that would, that would, have, been, that would have been very worthwhile. The problem, though, is that it's not a federal issue. The government, the federal government got out of the out of any kind of uh, regulations that prohibited it. Now it's up to the provinces. And so it's kind of a piecemeal patchwork in terms of which provinces allow direct shipping of wine. And uh, to date, the key markets for B.C. being Alberta and Ontario uh, remain closed. And so we've been working hard to convince those provinces to open up. But, you know, given the situation today, everyone else has got other issues on their mind and in helping, you know, their their residents within their provinces. But I guess in, in hopefully when we look back at this, it'll make the case that uh, just how important it is, not just for wine, but interprovincial trade and the ability for Canadians to buy Canadian products uh, just reinforces that uh, that need. We only have about a minute left. Do you think, will the harvest be okay as far as the wine industry in BC will be able to get enough workers, have the, the supply of bottles, everything else that's needed to, to move forward through this? Yeah, absolutely. There's no reason to think to think not. I mean, it's again, it's another vintage. Every vintage has its peculiarities. Every vintage has its anomalies. Again, it's farming, and uh, you know, we're talking about uh, Mother Nature, and hopefully the weather cooperates. But the point is made that there is more wine coming, and so please continue to support BC wine. Please reach out to the wineries, any your favorite winery, or go to the store uh, and and pick up some wine. And as you pointed out. Now you can order some wine to come uh, with your meal directly to the home. So uh, please to continue to support BC Wine. And this vintage is going to be good as the next. And uh, let's enjoy BC VQA Wine. All right. Sounds good. Miles, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. So, well, whether it is clapping and making noise at 7 p.m. every day to say thank you to the healthcare workers, whether it's putting artwork, I've seen tons of it in buildings saying thank you to people as well. Many are coming out to thank those that are keeping some level of normalcy as we deal with this COVID-19 pandemic. And there are many people that maybe you don't see every day. Certainly you see the people in the grocery store and I know people are thanking them as well. What about the truckers who are continuing to work those long hours on the roads, making sure those goods get to the stores that are still open. Well, some disturbing new reports are showing that in some cases, truckers are having problems finding washrooms at truck stops. In some cases, they've been closed. Truckers uh, trouble finding clean and sanitary places to stop and rest. So let's bring in Dave Earl. He is the president of the BC Trucking Association to talk a little bit more about this. Dave, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, how widespread is this problem, or what are you hearing about truckers not being able to find these basic services? Yeah, we're, we're hearing more and more reports that uh, this is what's going on, and it's just really a reflection of so many uh, restaurants and, and chains closing their dining rooms uh, to service. So uh, truck drivers are having a very hard time finding places to stop, uh, use facilities to go to the washroom, wash their hands, and, uh, and grab a meal. Uh, which would have been completely normal and you probably wouldn't a trucker wouldn't have given it a second thought before absolutely it was just part of of what they would do and they would have their if they're on a route they know they'd have their usual stops their usual places they'd have a place to pull over and be able to park that big unit and they could you know walk in uh, grab their meal and uh, either stay or leave or go and uh, a lot of those options uh, right now are just not available to them. And what about the actual truck stops that uh, the, the busy? I'm thinking of the one in Hope or the other stops that cater mainly to truckers. Yeah, absolutely. Those uh, those facilities are in general are maintained by the Ministry of Transportation uh, and Infrastructure, and uh, those remain open. Um, you know, the highway contractors are responsible to uh, clean those facilities on a regular basis, uh, and those remain open. Um, but by and large there's not any food or anything warm there to uh, to pick up uh in some cases there are vending machines but uh, when you're pulling you know a, a 10 or 12 hour day 
Um, as much as you can bring a lunch with you, you're going to need some type of hot meal to keep you going. And uh, those just aren't available in those situations. And are you finding it then, is it because the restaurants are closed and maybe they've gone to a takeout model, so the facilities just aren't there? Or are places shutting them down because they don't want to clean them, they don't want to have them available to truckers? Bit of both. Um, What's been interesting is some of the the shutdowns and not having it available uh, to truckers are actually at the shippers and receivers, uh, if you can believe it. So they're they're still shipping product. They're still wanting drivers to come to their facility and pick up their product, but they're barring those drivers from using facilities, um, which is just bizarre. Uh, in that you expect people to magically show up, uh, do the work, and, uh, and and not support them in being able to do that work. Um, in other circumstances, it's just uh, closing operations because uh, they've needed to in a public setting. Hmm. Uh, and what about uh, keeping the trucks clean? Do truckers do that themselves, or are there companies that do that? A bit of both. Again, uh, we've developed a best practices document for drivers and for carriers uh, to be able to uh, talk about what to do and what not to do. Uh, When you think about it in terms of social distancing, um, there's perhaps no better uh, occupation in the current environment to support that because by and large, truck drivers work alone uh, for the vast majority of their day. Um, But we talk about maintaining social distancing and maintaining those protocols when they get to their point of origin or their point of destination. Um, You know, making sure there's hand sanitizer available uh, in the vehicles. And, uh, you know, we work with members to make sure that they can access uh, those materials as much as possible. But that's why it's so very important that people don't go out and buy these things and stockpile them. Uh, it's not just healthcare workers that need to be able to protect themselves. It's the drivers that we rely on for everything that we need day to day that need these materials. Well, and, and it's so counterintuitive, too, in that we're being told to wash our hands often throughout the day, use hand sanitizer if you don't have that option. And it's truckers that we need to keep. They're, they're one of the groups that needs to do this to keep safe, to keep healthy and to keep this essential service. Uh, absolutely, Jill, and I, and I will mention that the message is getting out. Uh, we actually uh, saw some uh, some posts over the weekend in social media where a restaurant in Cologne, I'm sorry, in Kamloops, has actually uh, opened their washing facilities just to commercial drivers. Hmm. So it's not available to you and I, members of the public, but uh, commercial drivers that show up there, not only can they get a meal, uh, they'll also be let inside to use the washroom. So really happy to see that that message is starting to take hold. Absolutely. And I'm not surprised when I first started hearing about this, I was thinking there there must be some that are going to come forward or they're going to offer whatever they can do to still be safe and keep that distance, but but help out. Uh, Is there anything else that can be done when you're talking about the shipping places or, or the places? I mean, does it go so far as you need the government to mandate they must provide cleaning facilities, washrooms at the very least? That's really, really difficult, and uh, I certainly hope we don't have to get there. Um, you know, when we talk about what those look like in some areas, that it is simply you know unlocking a locked door. Uh, in other areas, those facilities just don't exist. It, it really depends on where that trucker is going. So we're always hesitant to uh, to go to government and, and you know call for regulation. Uh, what we're calling for is exactly what we're doing today, which is talking and getting the message out and asking people to think about the the drivers and think about the operations that are supporting us. Uh, in this critical time and uh, just to think a little bit about how we can support them and give them access uh, to what they need to be able to do their jobs. Absolutely. Uh, I'm hearing concerns as well as far as the number of hours truckers are working and I know that's regulated but has that been relaxed in given the importance now that's been put on getting the goods and making sure that goods are flowing uh, into the country Um, because there are concerns about trucker fatigue and if truckers are going to be pushing themselves too much right now. You bet, and uh, I can provide some clarity on that. There are very, very few and extremely narrow exceptions to the hours of service regulation. Uh, For 99% or more of everything that moves right now, the hours of service regulation, the enforcement, everything is exactly as it has been. Uh, Nothing's changed. For very, very uh, special and, if you will, uh, defined shipments of, um, for example, medical supplies that are being used uh, to combat the COVID outbreak, uh, in those circumstances, if you have a carrier, a company, that is moving an entire load of a piece of that type of equipment uh, for a defined period and a defined route, at that point, uh, they can consider using hours of service exemptions 
But even doing that, uh, they're not exempt from managing fatigue. So in other words, you might be able to go over maybe by a half an hour, hour or something like that. But you're not going to be able to run, you know, 16, 18 hours a day indefinitely. That's an absolute no. All right, because I, because I think there was concerns and concerns for safety, but also for, for the health of truckers. So that's good to, to know that it's not just a free-for-all in this time of emergency that that can happen. Absolutely. And it's especially critical recognizing that, you know, we're not going to be into this for the next seven or 10 days. Um, This is a period of time that we're going to have to manage. So protecting the health and safety of the people that serve us uh, is really, really critical. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on and clarifying that. And my guess is you'll have more places like the restaurant in Kamloops coming forward uh, once they start hearing more about this. Uh, But thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. All right. There has been a question asked about drug licensing. And should Canada make compulsory licensing permanent in this country to prevent drug shortages? A short-time measure that's been brought in because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, Joel Lexchin, who is a professor emeritus of health policy and management at York University, also an emergency physician at University Health Network, uh, joins me on the line. He has written about this and is here to talk a bit more about this idea. Joel, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for your interest in this, Jill. Well, I think whenever we hear the phrase drug shortages, people that rely on their prescriptions and need them uh, get nervous. And uh, people have been reassured that as long as people don't stockpile, there will be enough uh, prescriptions and medication to go around. Uh, But what has changed as far as the compulsory licensing while we're dealing with COVID-19? So let me just start off by explaining what compulsory licensing means. Um, Drugs are typically under patent uh, under patent for 20 years. Um, compulsory licensing simply means that another company is allowed to produce and market that product even when the patent is still in effect. And typically these are generic drug companies. Canada used to have compulsory licensing between 1969 and 1994 as a way of controlling um, how much we spend on drugs because generics um, are considerably cheaper than the brand name versions. All right. And so under what with what we're dealing right now with COVID-19, that's been relaxed a bit or that's been or has that been brought in for a certain period of time? Um, Yes, the government's uh, current the bill that the government passed last week says that um, if you get a compulsory license, it's good for a year, and they're not planning on issuing any new ones after September 30th of 2020. And when it's been tried before, not surprisingly, the drug companies with the patents don't like this. Has there been much response from the the bigger drug companies? Um, So far, no. I mean, the last time I looked... um, The organization that represents the major drug companies in Canada hadn't yet taken a position on this new piece of legislation. And do you think maybe that is it because they've brought in the one year time limit in that it's not like they're opening the doors to this and saying from now on uh, we'll have this licensing in place? It could be or it could be just the optics of saying um, of appearing to be against um, a public health measure the drug companies, I don't think, would be looking very good in the public's eye if they were to take a position that said, if you can't get enough drugs um, to treat um, COVID-19, too bad. Right. That would not look good at all. What about in the bigger picture, though, in that somebody might hear this and say, yes, this is great. It's going to bring down the cost of drugs. But does it then take away the incentive? Where's the incentive of a bigger company to make these patents and to do the research, to spend millions on research to come up with these drugs if they're just going to be given to generic companies? Um, I think we have to realize that um, drug companies do not develop drugs just for the Canadian market. Canada is under 2% of the world market. Um, Realistically, what we do in terms of drug prices has minimal effect on the profitability of the large drug companies. Um, So the fact, if we um, start giving out generic generic, um, compulsory licenses to generic companies and they um, produce drugs at lower cost, 
that really won't affect the major drug companies. In fact, when we had generic uh, compulsory licensing back in the 70s and early and 1980s, there was a federal report that was undertaken um, that concluded that since compulsory licensing had come into effect, um, company, the large drug companies had done better in Canada than they had in the United States. Uh, and would it be the same now, do you think, or what would stop a company then, a generic company, from, from taking that and, and producing it, manufacturing it, not just for Canadians, uh, but around the world? Um, that's possible, but the size of the generic companies that we have is not um, not large enough to undertake that kind of worldwide distribution. Moreover, other countries may not um, accept drugs that are produced under compulsory licenses. I don't think that that's a major worry. Uh, because that is one of the arguments, though, uh, that, that goes back in that, uh, that yes, what you say is true. They're not only making drugs for the Canadian market. They're obviously making it for an international market. But again, where is the incentive if your patent is then going to be given away? Well, again, what if your patent, if you lose a percentage of your Canadian market, you lose the entire Canadian market. For your product, how much of your overall profits have you actually lost? And the answer is a minimal amount. In fact, the idea that drug companies are spending um, most of their money doing research and development is a fiction. There's a study out of the United States that shows over the past 15 or so years, companies have spent more on share buybacks and dividends than they have on research and development. But they are still investing, and again, I don't mean to just cheer for the drug companies, but they are still investing millions or even billions in some cases to come up with life-saving drugs. They do um, invest a considerable amount of money. Some of the drugs that they invest in are very worthwhile. I work as an emergency physician and prescribe um, those drugs. But if you look at the objective measurements of the usefulness of drugs, it's about one out of 10 new drugs that are actually substantial therapeutic improvements. The rest of them are, um, are not, and they're invested because they, companies see them as a way of making money, not as a way really of improving public health. Uh, and, and just to go back on, on your earlier uh, saying that b- because of the market size in Canada or the size of the generic companies, it won't really hurt the bottom line. But that Canada would be a one-off, wouldn't it? And would other countries not look and say, well, if they're doing compulsory licensing, why not do it here too? And it could, could, could it not then happen in other countries as well? It could. In fact, it already is. Israel has issued a compulsory license for a drug that may be useful in treating um, COVID-19, so is Chile. And I think in these situations, we have to decide whether or not we're willing to let the drug companies um, charge what they want, or we're willing to um, have shortages in drugs, um, or we want to protect public health. I'm in favor of the latter. All right. We will leave it there. We're right out of time. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks very much again. Thanks for being with us today. Well, you've seen the shaming on social media, people trying to sell hand sanitizer or other cleaning supplies out of their vehicle. The general public not so pleased with that. So you probably would not be surprised by the results of a new poll done by Research Co. And President Mario Canseco joins me on the line to talk about the findings. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Gail. It's great to talk to you in an afternoon and not a morning. <laughs> I know you didn't have to get up super, super early and on a weekend to talk today. Oh, it was always a pleasure. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about these findings. I'm not surprised at all. I'm guessing you aren't overly surprised either. You were asking people about the punishment for people who take opportunities and try and take advantage of others during this pandemic. Yeah, it was quite interesting. I did expect a lot of Canadians to say that some of these behaviors uh, have to be dealt with with a fine. And that's exactly what we found on a couple of these instances. You know, 79% of Canadians saying we should impose monetary fines for those who bought items and resold them at a higher price. And a slightly higher number, 84%, 
for imposing monetary fines on those who are offering bogus cures against the coronavirus. Uh, but when we asked about jail time, we also found majorities of Canadians who would endorse something like this. 56% authorizing jail time for those who bought items and resold them. And 74%, that's three out of four Canadians, wanting the same course of action for those who are offering bogus cures against this virus. So definitely Canadians not amused when it comes to the situation that we faced in some cities when it came to selling things at a higher price. And also with all of those uh, email offers that many of us have been receiving about ways to cure a virus, which goes against all of the regulations that we heard uh, from several levels of government and also from the WHO. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's even sad that the government has to bring in measures to uh, to tell people to stop doing this or to say that this is illegal, you can't do this, uh, particularly during a state of emergency. Uh, did you ask how much of a monetary fine or was it just in general people were in favor of imposing monetary fines? Um, it was just in general this time around. We wanted to get a sense of how Canadians would feel about something like this, uh, just as something that could be in the books. Now, the first province that actually authorized something like this was Newfoundland and Labrador back in March 18th. It, it seems like it was ages ago, but it was only just two weeks ago when they said we have to do something about these things. And one of the things that we could think about, particularly when it comes to those who are breaking curfew, would be a fine of up to $2,500 and a jail sentence of up to six months in jail. And, you know, at the time there was a reaction from some groups that said, well, maybe this is too much. Maybe this isn't something that we should be considering right now. Uh, but given the situation that we find ourselves now, uh, there's definitely a higher level of support when it comes to Canadians looking at some of these measures. You also asked uh, Canadians, you asked people if they would be in favor of fining people who broke the quarantine or who were told uh, for whatever rules uh, they, they had to go into isolation or go into quarantine. And people seem to be in support of that as well. Yes, uh, there's a high level of support uh, for imposing monetary fines for somebody who's supposed to not be outside. You know, we've had all of these messages from different levels of government asking people not to go out if they are coming in from another country, for instance. Now, when it comes to actually thinking jail time for this type of situation, the numbers shift very drastically. You know, 45 percent of Canadians saying that jail, uh, jail time would be OK for something like this. 45 percent saying it wouldn't be. Uh, so, again, you know, it's a situation where there's a high level of concern about what is happening with a COVID-19, uh, but there's definitely more animosity towards other groups, not necessarily those who are breaking curfew. Absolutely. We were talking about this uh, earlier, uh, I forget what day, because all the days blend into each other right now, uh, <laughs> but with the mayor of New Westminster, or it was just yesterday, the mayor of New Westminster about the fact that that city has put in a, com they call it a compliance line. I mean, basically it's a snitch line. It's a line for people to call in if they see somebody breaking the rules. But I think for some reason, when we're talking about a pandemic, people who maybe would never Never have thought of doing that to calling out their neighbors before uh, people are taking this very seriously and we want to get through this as quickly as possible so they're doing that well it is uncharted territory i think if we go back to the way we felt about many of these measures in other moments uh, the numbers are not going to be uh, quite as high as what we see right now but this is definitely something that is captivating the entire country uh, the level of uh, uh, of animosity towards those who are exposing themselves into a situation that could be detrimental to the communities is definitely higher. And I think this is one of those reasons for uh, the level of support for something like what is happening right now in New West uh, uh, to be as high as it is. I mean, people are um, essentially paying attention not only because of themselves, but also because of their own community, which makes this completely different from other uh, so-called niche lines, if you will, that we've seen in the past. I know you often ask people based on how they voted or what age group they fall into. Did you ask that in this case? Yeah, we definitely did. The numbers are quite interesting because we don't see a lot of changes from specific uh, age groups to another. Uh, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, for instance, when we're looking at the situation related to imposing monetary fines for those who bought or and resold items, uh, the level is the essentially highest with those over 55 at 86 percent, but it's 78 percent for those who are aged 35 to 54 and 72 percent for those who are aged 18 to 34. So there's not a lot of uh, 
change in the way specific groups feel about things. Uh, one of the things that was quite eye-catching is when you're looking into the numbers on a regional basis, uh, Alberta tends to be at one of the highest levels of support for this. So definitely more people in Alberta thinking that we should lay down the law when it comes to this type of, of situation. Hmm, interesting. Uh, yeah, and I wonder why that is. Are there So in Alberta, the more, more support for, for jail time and for monetary fines? Yes, more than anywhere else in the country, which was quite interesting. Now, mind you, we still have a majority of residents everywhere else saying that they would like to see something like this happen. But if you're looking at this from a pseudo-libertarian standpoint, uh, Ontario is one of the places where this is happening, albeit at a lower level. All right. Very interesting findings. We will leave it there. Mario, thank you once again so much. My pleasure, Jill. Anytime. All right. Mario Conseco is the president of Research Co. Let's turn it over to you. When we come back after a short break, I want to hear from you on this. Are you in the 84% who are in favor of monetary fines for anybody who might offer a bogus cure against the coronavirus? The 79% who are in favor of imposing fines for people who have bought items and then are trying to resell them at a higher price. All right. That music is a bit of a hint as to what we are talking about next. Uh, We've been talking about businesses that are having the negative impacts because of COVID-19. We talked a lot about charities earlier on, food banks as well, even with government assistance saying it's going to be very difficult. Well, how is the BCSBCA dealing with the pandemic? It has many people in lockdown. People are socially, physically distancing from friends, families, uh, the way we've been living our lives. Uh, The lockdown has also had a major impact on businesses and again, charities such as the BCSBCA and uh, Claire Allen has been talking about this and chatting with the people at that organization and joins me now uh, to bring me more of their story. Good afternoon to you. Hey Jill, yeah, so I like to think that, you know, dog stories are kind of my beat, uh, but, you know, pets in general, I could uh, open myself up to. So I spoke with Lori Chortik. She's the general manager of community relations for the BCSBCA. And I wanted to know about the impact that COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic has had on the operations of the BCSBCA. Well, the SBCA, uh, like so many other organizations, has definitely been impacted uh, we're having to close our shelters, uh, restrict access to the public, so we're only open to the public by appointment for adoptions and for emergency surrender. So we're definitely still on site caring for the animals and doing our cruelty investigations, but definitely it's limited our capacity and certainly limited our donations. So while she said that it's really limited their capacity and donations, you know, that's something that we've heard from other charities as well, that they have seen a de- decrease in donations and that their operations have been scaled back. The BCSBCA actually recorded a record amount of, ad- amount of adoptions last week. We had 300 animals be adopted into loving homes, and that included uh, cats and kittens and farm animals and small animals and birds. So all the range of animals who are our care got homes, including uh, 24 mini horses who were part of a seizure or a cruelty investigation we'd done earlier in the month. So 24 of those little horses got homes as well. So we were really grateful and thrilled to see how well the community responded and to just have those animals in great homes and to free up that space so we can take in more animals in need. Wow, that's uh, amazing, and especially the mini horses. Who would have thought that uh, during a pandemic that uh, that would happen? I'm also, I mean, it is so great, but I'm also a bit surprised in that I would have thought people might be reluctant thinking with physical distancing it might be difficult to go to see the animal, to do the pickup and to do that, but clearly they're finding a way to do that. Right, and um, the BCSBCA has changed the way that they are sort of allowing people to come to the shelter and view animals. A lot of the um, normal adoption process is done online now, which Lori will discuss a little bit in a, in a few seconds here. But um, I was kind of wondering, you know, like why why such a huge surge in adoptions? Uh, she says she attributes it to this promotion that they were running, which is a ha- half-price adoption fees. But, you know, they've run that promotion before, Jill. I know you're quite mm-hmm. familiar with the BCSBCA. So I think, and Lori agrees, that she really attributes the 300 adoptions to people simply being home more <laughs> or completely during this time and realizing that they'd like to have an animal, you know, whether it be a dog, a cat, or as you say, a, a miniature horse <laughs> in their life. And um, what makes this really great is that that amount of animal adoptions has allowed for the BCSBCA 
to move an additional 400 animals currently in foster homes to the shelters so that they too can be adopted and maybe ride this wave of people wanting to open their homes to animals. Um, but what I was, I, th there's good news there, but what I was a little bit concerned about is that, you know, in previous uncertain economic times, animal rescue organizations across North America have reported seeing an increased amount of animal surrenders when, you know, people start to become laid off, when they get laid off from their jobs or just have other impacts on their finances. And I asked Lori if the BCSBCA is preparing for the possibility of having to take in more animals if this pandemic and the economic fallout continues. I think that's really what we're preparing for. I mean, it's so unfortunate that people may have to give up their pets, but it may be a reality. Right now, we're looking in terms of our emergency uh, boarding for people and surrenders, we've sort of had to prioritize in terms of uh, people fleeing violent situations. So we know that when times are stressful, uh, unfortunately, domestic violence, that's a time when that increases as well. So we always have provided emergency boarding for women fleeing violent situations. So we suspect that may increase in the next few weeks and months. We know that there may be a whole other range of needs that the community has, and we just want to be really prepared so that as our capacity and our resources allow, that we're able to be that safety net for the public. So, I mean, it's nice to hear that now, because of the 300 adoptions, they're going to be able to devote more time to dealing with those sort of animal surrenders, whether it be a domestic violence issue or simply a, um, a lack of finances or lack of being unable to afford your pet. Um, but Lori wants to stress that for anyone who's considering adopting an animal from the BCSPCA during this time, the organization has implemented some new rules to keep everyone safe. But I would like to stress for people who are looking for animals to continue looking at our website. Last week, Monday through Friday, we adopted about 300 animals, but more than 50 came in over the weekend. So we're continuing to have animals come into our care. So if people can keep checking our website, we've adjusted our adoption procedures so that most of it is done online. And then when people have filled out their application form, we make an appointment for them to come into the shelter so we can reduce the number of people in the shelter. We make sure that all the distancing and the biosecurity procedures are in place to uh, reduce that risk to any kind of um, public health issue. So we definitely still have animals for adoption and that will continue um, moving forward. And Jill, I know you have two dogs. I have a dog and I am currently fostering a dog, which was not planned during the <laughs> pandemic. That wasn't not because we're just sitting in isolation, but it was something I had uh, done before. And, you know, I've seen a lot of celebrities and other people on social media talking about, you know, get a dog during this time. You know, it'd be great. Um, but Lori says that, you know, you shouldn't adopt a pet on a whim just because it seems like a fun idea. Anytime we're doing adoptions, the same counseling comes into effect that it is a lifetime commitment to bring an animal into your home. You're looking after that animal, both um, its care needs, its emotional needs, its um, financial, you know, there's food, there's veterinary care. So it is a responsibility and it's a big commitment. So we always want to make sure that people understand the commitment that they're making. And that doesn't change regardless of these you know, very special times that we're in. We want to make sure that people understand that when they make that commitment to their pet, that's that commitment for the rest of that pet's life. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, so you might be bored right now in isolation <laughs> and you might think it's a good idea to get a dog, but you know, hopefully life will go back to normal. And if you do get an animal, it's a commitment for life. So if it sounds like something you would like to do and you think that you are ready to welcome a pet into your life, you can find out more information about animals available for adoption at the BCS, uh, BCSBCA simply by checking out their website at sbca.bc.ca. All right. Uh, very good advice and some great, uh, some uplifting news uh, given it what's is. going on and, and what's happening at the uh, BCSBCA. All right, Claire, thank you so much. Or the MS Zandam. Bob Rorison is on that cruise ship. He was on a trip with his wife to celebrate his birthday. They are still on the cruise ship and we've connected uh, with Bob on the Zandam. Bob, thanks so much for chatting with us today. You're welcome. Uh, what's happening now? Where are you and what's happening? Well, uh, I think we're just uh, 
clearing uh, Cayman Islands or Jamaica, West Jamaica, somewhere, and we're uh, the ship is headed towards Florida. And have you been told you'll be able? To... Okay. Have you been told you will be able to no. dock there? No. So what are officials telling you at this despite point? All the, despite all of the rumors on the internet, there's no information to us from the captain where we're going to dock, and we don't believe anything until we see it. They're doing everything they possibly can, and they're, when they do it, they just do it. So uh, with any luck, we'll get to one of the ports, and, and we can pull a ship in, and we can get off and get on a plane and go home. That's all we hope for. What are the conditions like on the ship right now? Well, the conditions for us, we don't know what the rest of the ship is like. In our room, it's uh, pretty confined. Uh, however, we do have a window. We can see the back of the ship and the uh, the wake of the ship as we're moving forward. And uh, they do service three meals a day. Sometimes they're lacking a little bit, but... You know, it's it's not too bad. Uh, they're doing the best we can. When they bring food, they put the tray outside the door and knock on the door and leave. Uh, we put on our mask, open the door, bring in the food, and then close the door because we don't want contact with anybody. All of the food delivery people wear masks and, and uh, personal protective equipment so that uh, there is no contact, we hope, with anybody that may be sick. We believe that most of the people uh, that are sick are quarantined and will never get out, uh, which must be horrible for them. Absolutely, because there have been, I mean, there have been four deaths on that ship. There have been other positive cases of COVID-19. Are you, are you confident, though, by taking these measures that you and your wife uh, will be okay? No, of course not. We're not confident at all. We have no idea how this disease spreads. We don't know how it can go from one person to the other. And uh, we're going to take every precaution we can just to get off the ship and go home and and deal with whatever the situation is there. So, no, of course, we're not confident. You know, all of the air on the ship gets circulated. Uh, We have no idea whether the sick people's air is being delivered to our cabin. We don't have a door, we don't get fresh air, so we have a window that we can see out of, uh, but we do not have a patio door or or, uh, somewhere where a balcony where we can step outside and get fresh sea air. So uh, the air we're breathing in the room is from the HVAC system on the ship, and uh, who knows, it's probably safe. The, The chances are really small, but... We really don't know how safe we are. And have you heard anything? Have you been able to connect with, with the government in Canada or heard anything on, on the help you might get when the ship is able to port? Well, we haven't heard what help we might get. We have many people working on it. Uh, my daughter and son in particular, they're writing letters to everybody. Uh, people are writing letters to uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, sosinternational.gc.ca, we've been in touch with them, they're aware of us. We were in touch with the Panama Council, and we have an address now for the Canadian Council in Miami. Uh, We request the assistance of anybody that can write a letter. I wrote a letter to the governor or an email. I wrote an email to the governor of Florida saying, on compassionate grounds, let us off the ship and send us home. He's uh, he's been known to say that he's only worried about the people in his state and uh, other people don't matter. So he doesn't want other people taking up the beds. Hmm. Well, sorry, sir, but if I need a bed, you should give it to me. And frankly, we don't need a bed. We're both well. All We're right. both comfortable. We don't have any symptoms. And maybe the best thing for us was being locked up in this room because we're not talking to anybody else. We're not touching anyone else. We're not near anyone else. All right. So, um, Bob, we'll have to leave it there. We will check. 
We're going to check in with you again and really hope that you get some good news and some movement on this. But uh, stay safe and stay healthy and we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Thanks for being with us today. If you are following along on social media or keeping in touch with friends, family that way, uh, you've likely seen people referencing the fact uh, they've forgotten what day it is, what month it is. How long have we been doing these social physical distancing measures and staying home as much as we can? Seems to a lot of people, seems a lot longer than it has actually been. So a new phrase is popping up, Corona fatigue. This, as we were told by the provincial health officer yesterday, watershed week. This is a crucial time and how we act now, how we continue with these measures now will have a big impact on how long we will have to do this isolation and lockdown. Well, let's bring in Michelle Cambolis, a clinical therapist and author to talk about this idea of corona fatigue. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Jill. Uh, I, I imagine it would be kind of normal for people. At first, it's it's new, it's different, it's a bit strange, and then it gets a bit tiring. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's some really predictable stages um, to people's reactions with coronavirus and, and facing you know, the level of threat that we've been under. And, and you know, in the first stage, people really... Um, came together and um, and and really out of our survival instinct, we made some very dramatic changes with social distancing, washing our hands, going out only for necessities, and and um, and so you know in our in our desire to keep ourselves safe and and um, our communities safe, we we took the measures that needed to to be taken. Um, and, and then there was an interesting kind of transition for a lot of people into like almost a sense of motivation and, and um, uh, a desire to use the time for connecting with families and self-improvement. And you saw a lot of people um, putting plans in motion to exercise more and really look after them, themselves. And, and, but, you know, now We've been at home for a very long time um, with our partners, with our children, and there. And we were also um, now very, very deeply, deeply aware of the level of trauma and the level of loss. Um, and so there's there's a almost a collective grief that we're all experiencing. So you know. First of all, you know, the, the ongoing uh, task and burden of hypervigilance combined with the collective grief of everything that's happening in the world leads to a great deal of fatigue. Absolutely. So what advice do you give to people then? And, and I think it might even be worse, I would think, for people, like you said, that are at home. Many people are trying homeschooling now for the first time ever. They never anticipated that they would be in a position like that. What advice do you give people who are feeling this way? Well, any opportunity that you have to come together and reach out for support um, is is a great line of defense. And um, I mean, hopefully, we're really paying attention to um, getting enough sleep and making sure that we're, um, you know, accessing some level of exercise every day and really looking after our mind body system. But, you know, from there, um, you know, leaning into our supports in order to make these adjustments is really important. Find your rhythm, um, rest when you need, and understand that this doesn't have to look a specific way. Um, it's really a matter of whatever you need to do to make this time um, work for you in a way that minimizes stress and anxiety and allows you to stay the course. And what about technology? Because this has been brought up a few times and that imagine doing this without smartphones, without iPads, without screens, that you can do virtual meetings and virtual check-ins with people. Oh, doesn't that make you so grateful for, for technology? <laughs> and people are having, you know, um, dinners with family members over platforms like Zoom and, and now um, homeschooling over Zoom. And, um, and at our clinic, we're providing uh, a virtual counseling um, so that people are still able to access clinical counseling support and um, and the um, you know the contact that they need in order to be able to keep their mental health intact 
And and it's funny because we often talk about how technology in, under normal circumstances can keep us, you know, checking work email and can keep us constantly linked into everything and turned and, and makes it so it's difficult to unwind and difficult to get away from that. Whereas now it's become such a lifeline. Such a lifeline. And it's so important that when we're connecting with others that we have that eye contact um, so that we can touch with our eyes. You know, one of the first things that happens when, when we come into this world is we're touched and we're held. And so, um, you know, really we need that on a primal level. And if we don't have it, it has an impact on our, on our health system, on our immune system and, and our endocrine system. So make sure that with those that you're self-isolating with, um, hug lots. <laughs> and um, for those that, that you're not able to stay in touch with, do it uh, online. And I've seen people exercising and again, posting on social media, finding innovative ways or creative ways to exercise at home. Not everybody obviously has a home gym or even has equipment to do that at home. Uh, but how important is that? Do you think even if it's, if it's doing a yoga class that you find online or doing some kind of routine that, that maybe you've never done before? Well, it's extremely important, and I've actually never seen so many um, offerings online in terms of calisthenics classes and yoga and and all kinds of workouts. So people are being very, very generous in, in um, you know, putting their offerings online. And But the other piece here is turning in and using this time in order to um, practice self-soothing and, and, um, and and self-knowing. So there are a lot of meditation practices that are available online as well. So, you know, depending on what you need, um, there's a lot available to you. And, um, you know, it's most importantly, it's a time to, you know, really listen to what that balance might look like for you. And what about people that might be dealing with depression or be dealing with uh, with with isolation and that even before this happened and are just feeling it uh, compiled on that and, and are even more affected by it? For those who struggle with um, mental health problems um, the, and who often feel isolated already, um, this is a very, very difficult time. And so um, it's so important to reach out. Um, There are mental health teams available that have put protocols in place um, in order to make sure that um, you have access to mental health support and treatment. And so, you know, while it may look different to what you're used to in terms of a support model, um, adaptations are being made and they're available to you. And one other question, financial uh, concerns are also uh, help, uh, for a lot of people, whether people have been temporarily laid off or had their work hours cut back or they simply can't go to work. Uh, what do you say when people, uh, along with the isolation and perhaps the missing of being around people, are also dealing with real financial problems? Yeah, so many of us are having to make um, adaptations and, and changes to how we're working and and um, many are out of work now. And so um, educate yourself on what's available to you in terms of um, financial support, EI support, um, grants and loans. Um, and, and then remind yourself that this is temporary, that while we want to weather this storm and we want to stick to all of the good work that we're doing to make sure that we're protecting ourselves and others, that this will have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you, you will be able to go back to, to earning again.